Our young people, millennials and Gen Zers, often get dealt a pretty rough hand in social commentary. Entitled, lazy, non-committal, frivolous, self-absorbed, shallow, you name it, I've heard it. My experience is pretty counter to that, and if you're in your 20s, I'm sorry that that's often the commentary that comes across about you and your age generation. I've come across amazing young people that are driven, innovative, and entrepreneurial. What I do know, though, is that you or your peers, or our young people if you're listening and you're slightly older, they've had to overcome many challenges that I don't think I had to overcome in my 20s. Depression rates for those in their 20s are rising, and they make up the largest cohort of those experiencing anxiety. I know that many young people in their 20s experience real pain. For example, when you were growing up, how many close friends or associates that you knew committed suicide? My baby sister in her 20s knows three. Our young people live in a world where there is constant comparison of themselves on social media and they are exposed to information overload. They're living through a global pandemic. They've observed the country to go through the most horrific act of terrorism. I wanted a discussion on what's causing havoc for those in their 20s and how we can support them to develop meaningful, satisfying lives. I'm Jackie McGuire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? Well, it means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy to understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimize personal well being, work, and relationships. Put simply, Mind Brew has been created to help people live the good life. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Randy Patterson, a Canadian clinical psychologist who has penned the best-selling book, How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use, and most recently released, How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, 40 Strategies to Fail at Adulting. Well, these are not the typical titles you normally find in the self-help section. Randy draws on the psychological science of well-being and mental health and flips it on his head. In this discussion, we look at the challenges those in their 20s face, methods to rewrite unhelpful inner stories, and how to cultivate a life led by values. Whilst focused on the 20s age group, this episode is a worthy listen for any cohort. You'll also notice, as you listen along this episode, that there are some technical glitches, (laughs) some periods where you can hear the Zoom reverberate on itself. My apologies, this is Zoom Podcasts in 2020, and so I'm going to ask you to bear with us. Most of the audio is okay. Enjoy. Randy, thank you so much for joining us for an episode of Mind Brew. It's so lovely to have you here, and you know, to kind of start us off what you've probably uh, been most known for in the author world is, is your book, How to Be Miserable. 
And recently you've you've released an edition on how to be miserable in your 20s. And this really caught my eye because I'm not that long out of my 20s and I have some pretty vivid memories of what that period of time is like. And so I thought this would be a really interesting discussion for many New Zealanders who might find themselves in their age bracket right now and potentially feel a bit lost or stuck or, you know, kind of grappling with this, I thought life would be X, Y, and Z, and now I'm living this reality, which maybe is quite different and that kind of mismatch between expectations and the world in front of you. So, you know, thank you so much. And I thought to start us off, it would be so wonderful if you could kind of explain to our listeners how you came up with this kind of cheeky way really of talking about well-being and positive psychology but kind of flipping it and doing it in reverse sure well it's great to be here um in like uh, years and years ago i um, moved from central canada uh, where i did my training out to vancouver and um, i was the head of a a depression treatment program for people who'd been hospitalized and then discharged from inpatient care for major depressive disorder. And we ran a group therapy program which was designed to reduce the rate of rehospitalization. So these people had really been through the ringer, right? They were, right. in many cases, the most severe of the depressed uh, clients, uh, the severe end. And I thought, gosh, you know, if I go in there saying, oh, cognitive behavior therapy, it's so wonderful, it'll fix you right up. Let's change your thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just change your thoughts and have you think happy ways and, yeah, everything will be fine. That's not going to go anywhere. Uh, Hopefully that's not actually what cognitive behavior therapy is actually like. But nevertheless, uh, you know, if you go in cheerleading, with the very deeply depressed population, you're going to get shot down very quickly. So I thought, well, okay, wait a minute. You folks, you know that the goal is, you know, to alleviate this this depressed state that you're in. But bear with me for a minute and just imagine just for a, a moment that the goal instead was to go in the opposite direction. Maybe you noticed in the middle of that table, there's $10 million. Of course, there is no $10 million in the middle of the group room table. But nevertheless, uh, imagine you could win that next Thursday if you can be more depressed next Thursday morning than you are now. How would you go about winning that money? And the first time I did that, I thought, oh, this is, this is <laughs> I'm on dangerous ground now. Um, but people, generally speaking, went with it and started suggesting things. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, stay in bed most of the day. I'd be awake at night. I wouldn't eat. I'd binge eat junk food. I wouldn't get any exercise. I'd close the curtains. I'd turn down all social events. I'd do an inventory of every failure that I've ever done and so on. People would come up with a, a great number of things. and Well, they're experts. Yeah, they're experts. As a matter of fact, that's the stereotype. When, when I talk about this book, somebody always says, oh, I'm the expert in that. Um, but these were the real experts. These were the Olympians, you know. Um, and, and often it's like pulling teeth dealing with a seriously depressed group. But strangely, in the course of that exercise, people would begin saying a lot. People would come up with a huge amount of stuff. And 
um, I'd be struggling to write it all down. And then at the end, I would say, now, let's imagine tomorrow morning you wake up, you're already depressed. Um, what do you feel like doing? What, what kind of feels right? Or what are you, what's the impulse? Oh, it's to stay in bed. Oh, and then I would circle that. And it's not eat, not to eat. And it's, uh, do you want to see people? No, I don't want to see. Oh, isolate. Okay, I'll circle that. And so on. And not everything would get circled, but a number would. And people realized that if, uh, let's say, an extraterrestrial came down and, and viewed them and said, okay, what, what's going on? They might think, oh, this person is acting in such a way as to bring about a depressed state. And yet, none of them wanted to be depressed. Mm. And, and that was true all the way down. It wasn't like surface and then hidden secretly. I love this. You know, I love being off work and, and being miserable. No. Um, they genuinely hated it. But why were they acting that way? And I think in cognitive therapy, we often talk about thoughts producing emotions. And what we ignore is that emotions produce thoughts as well. Mm. And when we feel terrible, we act in ways that spontaneously bring that up. So that became a big part of this group, and it turned out to be incredibly useful thing for session one of that group for years and years and years and years and years. Still teach that, um, and I began doing that for the general public as well in talks. Uh, you know, billing a talk as how mm. to be miserable, uh, and thinking, okay, nobody's going to show up for this, and then the room fills up. Over and over and over again, <laughs> the room fills up. It's kind of an odd phenomenon. You wouldn't think anybody would be interested. Uh, and then, it, of course, a book comes out as well. So that's sort of the, the origin of it, if you like. And the how to be miserable obviously is has got a tunneled, fo- well, not a tunneled focus, but, but a primary focus on those that are experiencing depression or whose mood has been low. And, you know, and, and then that can be extrapolated out to everybody in terms of how that they support their well-being. In terms of the group of 20s, people that are in their 20s kind of looking, looking down the barrel of life, Randy, you know, this obviously isn't just around those in their 20s that have experienced low mood. This is for everyone in their age bracket. And so, you know, from your point of view, you know, when you look at that group of 20s, what do you think perhaps are their main challenges um, that they are facing in that age group? Does that differ to, for example, when I was in my 20s or you were in your 20s? Um, Let's start there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... uh I think that one of the, the difficulties is that it's a complete revolution in the way that a person is expected to live. Um, we're raised to be children to a great extent, and, and the mission is keep us safe and nurture us and so on. And, and, and this, we even call it that. We call it child raising. But we get to the end of child raising, and we're not supposed to be a child, right? Even though the very name suggests that's what you're trying to produce. Um, and then suddenly the rug gets pulled out from under us and we're supposed to be independently thinking autonomous adults. And it really is a fundamental shift in the way we live our lives, from, uh, you know, as much as, uh, you know, caterpillar to butterfly, if you like. Um, and I think that's, that's probably a bigger transition than almost any other phase of life. Um, 
and and often happens more quickly. I, I, I often think in clinical work that the challenges that people experience are not so much from change as from sudden change, mm. you know, where the highway suddenly makes a 90 degree turn and you're expected to negotiate that curve. The, the shift from adolescence to adulthood for so many people is a tight turn. Mm. Uh, where you've got no roadmap, huh? You've lost the roadmap. Yeah. No, and, 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 and often our culture has either been doing one of two things. Either they have not given you a roadmap, they haven't told you, okay, adulthood, here's what you do. Or, and I think this is in many cases more the problem, we've given them a roadmap that lies, that is just not true. Uh, so we've given people a lot of principles. Here's how you guide your life. And actually, these are how to go off the cliff. And Rennie, you know, in your, in your book, you speak about lies, you know, <laughs> Santa's not the only lie. And some of them <laughs> that you describe are things like, um, you know, you're so special or go and surround yourself with people that are just going to celebrate you rather than perhaps challenge you, for example. And, and when you look at this generation in their 20s, do you think there is a difference to the messages that they have been told growing up compared to historic? Because I think there is definitely rhetoric in society that perhaps this generation have got it easier or their parents have really kind of sugarcoated life or kept them in cotton wool. Do, do you think that's the case or, or not? I, I think that in parenting, there has been a real emphasis on one of the two tasks of parenting. Parenting is really about two things. It's about keep the kids safe so it doesn't starve to death or you know die of neglect, and prepare for your own death. Those are really the two missions. Uh, and if you're preparing them for your own death, that means they can carry on and survive and deal with things uh, without your help. And I think we've done a really, really good job um, you know, obviously it varies by family, but it, we've really emphasized the nurturance side to keep the kids safe, really help them, nurture them, support them, and so on. We haven't done as good a job, I think, at preparing for independence. Um, I, I Just as an example of that, I think that we have um, really tried to help people not experience the emotional impact of failure. Mm. And, 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 you know, I don't think that's been, you know, bad-hearted at all. We've done that because it hurts and it's painful and it's awful and we don't like it. And, and yet it's probably one of the most important things that we can learn. I really think of failure as being one of the most important things that we should be learning and experiencing, mm. preferably repeatedly, in in the school system. And yet, there's such a fear of giving people that experience. Mm. The result is that when you reach adulthood, and adulthood really is um, a succession of failures. I mean, you have to try a whole bunch of stuff, and most of it doesn't work. I actually, I, often with clients, I'll, I'll write up on my whiteboard. Um, I will say, you know, here is a really good affirmation for your life, you know, a proverb or a, a way of thinking and just see if you can lock this in. And what I write in is most things don't work. You know, like if you want a good affirmation, there you go. There's one. Uh, most things don't work, which means that we fail constantly uh, in, in adulthood. And if we haven't had that experience, we're, 
ill-prepared. But the difference also, Randy, being too, right, if I go through something that's challenging or it hasn't worked out or I've failed, the bit after that that's most important is that I can sit and reflect, I can problem solve, I can take that as not personal to me, that I can hold the view that actually many people struggle and change and I externalise rather than internalise that failure. Um, and it's those lessons, you know, isn't it, that are so important in growing and developing into well-functioning, resilient agile adults absolutely yeah i mean if if it's if everybody around you has spent all this effort trying to avoid the experience of failure then you learn from that and one of the things you learn is that's a really dangerous thing Uh, and i think you learn to fear it more and when it happens you personalize it you know it's not that that failed that project didn't work out it's that i am a failure Mm. that's not actually a helpful you don't core really belief. learn much from that. Like, yeah, you don't. It's not a great core belief, but it also doesn't take you anywhere. Like, like, no. what do you do with that? Well, okay, how do I change my fundamental nature? I can't, so I guess that's it for life. I'm, I'm a failure. I'm picturing a pendulum and wondering if historically, you know, the stories I've heard from those that are older uh, in our society is that potentially their childhood was perhaps quite cold or they had parents that left them to their own devices all the time that maybe didn't come and celebrate them in the school, you know, auditoriums at prize giving, et cetera, you know, that there was that one side of the pendulum. And now we've maybe swung completely to the other side, which happens when we try and overcompensate. Like, I don't ever want my kids to experience that. So I'm going to do things completely. The opposite. I'm going to make sure they feel loved and that they know we've got their backs and that they're special. And, you know, maybe it's about how do we actually find some middle ground? Because maybe extremes on yeah. anything is not useful. Yeah. I, I, I think the idea of benign neglect is, uh, is important. And I, I was one of those raised with that. You know, I spent much of my childhood playing in the storm drains underneath the uh, local golf course, which I think would horrify any parent today. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, we need to have exposure to, you know, having to work things out for ourselves, having to solve the problem, having to deal with the consequences of our own actions. Mm. Um, and it's not people's fault that they don't have that experience if they, you know, have never been put in a situation to, mm. to have that. So I don't, I don't want to, you know, pathologize or critique uh, young people, I think the situation is genuinely difficult and difficult for more mm. reasons than just that. But it is an issue um, that we haven't been so good at saying, yeah, that's a real problem. Don't know how you're going to work that out. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I too, Randy, know some amazing young people in their 20s that do brilliant things and are Absolutely. tenacious and have overcome I think, quite significant struggle, even when I look back in my time there. I think the way in which this world is operating at the moment, uh, young people today have quite unique challenges. And, you know, I know you mentioned in your book, and I'm very aware of the stats, that, you know, depression in our young people is higher than it's ever been, that even though anxiety rates don't look like they're climbing, young people still form the largest cohort of people that experience quite significant anxiety. And, you know, I'm wondering, Randy, where things like social media, Media, for example, globalization, uh, parents that need to, you know, both parents having to work in order to live in this economic climate, you know, how that impacts on our young people and those that are starting to transition into adulthood. Well, you're right. I mean, social media uh, is 
uh, one of the factors that was really not a, uh, around for some of us uh, when we were growing up, uh, there's a post coming up on my own um, uh, vlog, uh, How to Be Miserable, um, on this very topic, which is that formerly um, we used to talk about keeping up with the Joneses, which would be you trying to um, compare yourself to your next door neighbors, let's say, and having as nice a car, as nice a home, as nice whatever, uh, and, and feeling like we couldn't really keep up. And that's a term actually from the early 1900s. Uh, these days, what we might be trying to keep up with is our friends on social media. And how do we know what's going on in their lives? Well, from the very carefully curated little bits and pieces that they um, that they have uh, uh, chosen to place up there, you know, the fabulous moments in their lives, they're not, you're not getting a chance to see a lot of it. But it's even worse than that because we do it too. In our own social media presence, we place up um, a carefully curated version of our own lives. So now, not only can we not really compete very well with our peers, we can't even compete with ourselves. You know, even compared to our social media self, we don't live up. So it's so easy to feel inferior as a result of that. Uh, and I yeah. think if you're comparing yourself to people in social media, you will always feel inferior. There will never be a, a, a change in that. Or to, your, or to your perfect self, as you say. You yeah. know, it's interesting you, you speak about perhaps our young people don't have the opportunity to experience failure regularly, but they damn well have the opportunity to experience rejection on almost a daily basis, you know, and that's painful Absolutely. and that's damaging. And, you know, I'm not, a, not only thinking about, you know, uh, comparisons on social media, but, you know, for the work I did with young people, FOMO was a really, really large trigger for anxiety and low mood. You know, when I was at school or in university, if people went out and went to a party and I wasn't invited, I didn't find out about that till Monday, you know, and then it's in the past. Whereas our young people today may be sitting at home and they are in real time living and breathing what other people are doing around them when perhaps they weren't invited, for example. And I think I think that's hugely painful for a lot of young people yeah yeah and 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 that kind of rejection is not a new um feeling the, the the sensitivity to it is not a new feeling but the availability of the rejection if you like is so much more present and it can mm. and be played out in real time right right now these people are doing this and what am i doing nothing why because i didn't get invited anywhere yeah, I'm hypothesizing as we speak, going back to kind of the evolutionary nature of social interactions, Randy, and thinking, you know, rejection obviously is an emotion that is painful because it wants to drive you to be reconnected because you need to be connected to be safe and to be alive and, for you know, for you to be able yeah. to go and reproduce and keep the human species alive. And so, you know, it is a painful emotion because it's there to drive action. And, you know, you go back to those links to anxiety, you know, or depression and you think, you know, there's a pretty clear, you know, hypothesized connection there, isn't there, Andy? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the straggler is going to get eaten by the tiger that's following the tribe. So if you're uh, not a member of the group, you're in potentially serious trouble. 
Yeah. yeah. So you need to be uh, connected. You need to have your role. You need to have your place. And you need to be part of the group. Mm. In your book, you have a, a section, Randy, on, and I'm going to try and pronounce this, hikikimori. Did I get that right? You did, yes. Which is this concept, again, if I'm right reading, where kind of young people get stuck or inert or, you know, perhaps they're not sure what their purpose is or what their goals are. Maybe they're still living at home and they're kind of trapped in this world between teenagehood and adolescence. Would that be a correct summary of that term? Yes. I mean, if we think of the difficulties that people have at that transition from adolescence to independent adulthood, uh, you know, obviously it's on a continuum. Some people it's pretty smooth and easy. Other people it's profoundly difficult. And so, yeah, it can be um, at its extreme end uh, a problem where a person is uh not only living at home with parents, which in itself is, of course, not a problem, uh, but unable to move forward in terms of work, school, socially, dating, almost any aspect of independent adulthood. And this is an increasingly common problem that we're seeing in, uh, in countries all over the world. It's interesting that there's this literature on it all over the place. It's, uh, the term hikikomori comes from Japan where it is most well-known in the popular culture. Um, but there's a literature on it in North America, in Britain, in various countries in Europe, and elsewhere. So, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a widespread phenomenon um, where people are tremendously isolated and stuck. Mm. And there are many kind of reasons behind that in your book but I suppose what really struck me and what I think about lots and the work I do and when I speak to people are those kind of internalized stories people can experience which kind of stop them in their tracks or stop them from progressing and you know you, you have a wonderful line which says as a child I assumed when I reached adulthood I would have had I would have grown up thoughts but actually I'm becoming an adult and my and my thoughts perhaps are still faulty or they're still childlike or you know they're, they're wonky and unhelpful to me and you know this is something I think all of us grow up with Randy is internalized stories that aren't based on fact they're based on experiences or what we've gleaned from experiences through our childlike worldview and I think they can become really unhelpful and you know I'd love to know when you're working with young people you know how do you help them identify what those stories are Um, because sometimes it's kind of hard to search them out and then once you've found them do you need to come along and see someone like you and I for a long time to shift them or are there other ways that people can try and you know rewrite their internal stories yeah, I think that one of the things that people can do is simply um, come up with an experience um, that where they felt a magnitude of difficult or uncomfortable emotion that seems either out of proportion to the event or that they suspect other people might not experience to quite the same extent. You know, it's like, okay, I wasn't invited to that party. I feel devastated. I think other people would just be disappointed. Okay, so let's use that. Rather than just mm, try not to think about it, let's actually think about it and say, what do I think the story was? 
the emotion probably does not come from the event because we know that somebody else might say, oh, thank goodness, I didn't have to go to that party. So it, it varies depending on the story that you're building. It's the story that's painful. So what is it? What was I thinking? What is it that is devastating, is terrifying about that situation? Or what did I think was uh, devastating or terrifying about it? Write that down and then investigate what do I think about that? Is it, is it actually true? And possibly what is at least logically, possibly not gut level, but at least logically what seems more true, not necessarily cheerful, but somewhat more true. And see if I can uh, cultivate um, an ability to remind myself of that when I find myself in similar situations in the future. But I really think in terms of that work, which we often call cognitive work and therapy, there are two avenues for it. One is this rethinking, figuring out what the story is we're telling ourselves and how we could tell it in another way or come up with a different story. And then the other aspect is recognizing that we have these negative um, storytellers in our minds and be able to simply tolerate them to some extent and recognize that they're kind of old stuff. They don't actually mean anything. And we just don't need to invest quite so much in those beliefs. A good example is uh, some people find that every time they take an exam of any description whatsoever, you know, even a, a you know, a, a quiz in a, in a magazine, they feel like, I'm going to fail. Right. And that comes up over and over and over again. And they recognize where that came from and that it's been irrational the whole time, and so on. And so ultimately, what they can cultivate is a, oh, yeah, that voice again, that same old stuff. Yeah, 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 whatever. And I often think that one of the best challenges, best cognitive challenges that people can come up with uh, is whatever. Oh, they're all going to hate me. Nobody's going to want to be around me. And they're all going to, you know, uh, laugh at me at the party. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's what I think before every social event. Whatever. To believe um, that whatever though, Randy, you also have to have pretty good sense of self internally, don't you? Like if my self-esteem or my confidence is low, then mm. I don't know if my brain will accept that whatever. Yes. I, I, that's true. And I, I think what you can do at that point is you can treat it as a behavioral experiment. It's like, okay, well, let's go to the, this party. 95% certain that this social catastrophe is going to take place. But importantly, at the end of the party, collect the data. Did it? Mm. And at some point, what we need to do is, and this is a bit paradoxical, but we need to learn not to trust ourselves. Mm. We need to learn at some point that there are bits of ourselves that are not trustworthy, that, mm. you know, it tells me I'm going to fail, tells me I'm going to be rejected, tells me that this isn't going to work out constantly. And it lies 90% of the time. Mm. That's a part of myself I need not to trust. Well, one of my favorite sayings are, is thoughts are not facts. They're just words strung together. And I think that's yeah. a really useful thing to remember often. I suppose the other component whilst there's the thinking part and there's the behavioral experiment, 
you know, in my work and work I've done with myself and work I've done with others is that it's often the emotion that's the crux, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, and if you're bright, yeah, I can cognitively restructure. I can change my thinking. I can behaviorally experiment. Um, but is there my like inner child inside or where does that emotion actually stem from? And if I don't process that or I don't have a way of kind of shifting that emotion, then it's going to keep coming and biting me in the ass. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, part of it is just about repetition, about learning, okay, there's that situation again. And yeah, 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 that didn't actually happen. Sooner or later, it begins to sink in um, uh, over time. But it it often takes a heck of a long time to get there. Yeah. One of the things I encourage a lot of uh, clients to do is to get a picture of themselves in their teen years uh, when they felt most vulnerable and most anxious. And just imagine, okay, this is your little sister. This is your little brother. And they're anxious and they're telling you this. And you think of this voice as, you know, Satan or something. It's actually your little brother. He's saying, oh, but what if they don't like me? And so rather than saying, oh, you idiot, like, why do you constantly think this way? This is so stupid. You've been proved over and over that isn't true. Rather than that stance, be able to adopt a, I know, it's anxiety-provoking, isn't it? Yeah, it makes us anxious going to these parties. But, you know, it usually works out. And even if it doesn't, you know, if it turns out we're not the most popular person there, well, we'll live. You know, what would you say if you were trying to encourage your younger brother who was standing there invisibly beside you. Mm. Have you seen the Elton John movie, Randy, where Elton no, John in the end, he's all, he, he actually helped direct it and write it. So it's kind of a lovely reflection of his inner experience uh, run through rehab, really. And the mm. final scene is him as an adult, all dressed up in his costumes, hugging his childhood self, you know, it's an exercise where he has to show compassion to himself as a child rather than anger. And it's quite an amazing scene, actually, which is describing really what you were talking about, which is to learn to hold compassion and love your inner child rather than hold it in disgust or contempt Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Yeah, just just trying to eliminate it or kill it off or or, or something like that. Yeah. That's... That's sort of the impulse that a lot of people have. And I find one of the things that happens in early cognitive therapy often is people realize they have these destructive um, um, anxiety-producing or depression-inducing ideas, and they just think, oh, for goodness sake, like, oh, how awful, like, look how, what an idiot I am, and so on. And that's often that initial temptation is to be so cold and rejecting of that part of yourself. And that never seen that work yet. Mm. So, so I too would encourage everybody to kind of notice when they're having a large negative or unpleasant emotional response that perhaps uh, repeats itself. So you find that you're having yeah. patterns of negative experiences and to kind of be able to sit and, and internally uh, inquire about what's that about and and where's, where's that coming from? And you might be able to do that on your own. You might be able to do that with a trusted friend, or you might need someone like Randy and I to come and kind of sit and help you unpick that. But to provide people with another example, because I think examples are always useful when kind of l- looking at these uh, 
ways of self-analyzing and working out. You know, my my story, Randy, was I have to be perfect. You know, and mm. that has that has popped up all over my life. I worked really hard, even through high school, like to the point where I wouldn't socialize as much or I'd miss out on things because I was studying. And I look back now and I go, gosh, that was so silly. Like, why did I do that? And I tried mm. to get into medical school and I think I missed out by one point. So it was like I always wanted to be a doctor and, you know, I'd always been top of my class and I'd never failed before and then I missed out. So I got to my early 20s. You know, I'd done my pre-med year, I'd worked really hard, but I flunked the kind of patterns test. They give you this test anywhere you've got to sit and work out patterns. And, you know, I just, I didn't do very well on that. And so by one point I missed out on getting into medical school and my kind of world fell, fell apart because I hadn't been perfect. And, you know, it's useful for people to go, where do those stories come from? And I can track that right back to probably being four, Randy. And my mum comes from a line of women that had pretty hard lives. They had husbands that leave them, that had abusive pasts. And my mum had kind of shared that this line of women ahead of me had kind of really struggled. And in my you know, four or five-year-old mind took it upon myself that the world was therefore on my shoulders and I had to live this perfect life to make up for the woman that had gone before me. And that stuck with me. And it probably wasn't till my late 20s that I worked out that I'd been carrying this burden, (laughs) which I'm sure my mum had no means of imparting on me, but I had internalised that as, okay, all these women have had hard lives. It's up Mm -hmm. to me to be perfect to make it up for them. And it caused havoc in terms of feeling anxious or really working hard all the time, missing out socially. And, you know, it's, I think, useful for people to go, how far back do those stories go? You know, think of a little child you know, and did they have the cognitive capacity to really, with an adult brain, think about that no you know so it's kind of going back isn't it and kind of helping people reprocess at the age and stage they were when those stories started to form it can be really useful sometimes to realize that some of those stories um are kind of rational in a way um you know not only do they make sense sort of intergenerationally often but you know that that sense that i am a failure well, actually, you are. Yeah, I mean, if your if your if your criterion is perfection, then absolutely you're a failure. Not only are you a failure in this, but you're in that, that, and that, and that, and that's not just true for the past; it's true for the future as well. And you always will be a failure, unless we look at the necessity of having that as our criterion of success. Mm. Maybe what we need to do is to rethink that. So how do people do that? Because I think I think that's a major issue, especially in that quarter-life crisis when you're in your 20s. Yeah. And, you know, especially when people are getting to the end of their 20s, what I have observed, Randy, is that, you know, people perhaps, they're not the hikikimoris, they're not people that mm. have stayed home and lost. They've, like, gone to university, they've got the job they wanted to do, they've worked really hard, they've sacrificed X, Y, and Z, and then they get to this point where they go, shit. I don't know if I want to do this. I'm not happy. I'm not in a relationship I'm happy with. I'm not in a career field. I've done what I should do or what I'm supposed to do rather than perhaps following passions or or other pathways. And I've lived up to these really unrealistic expectations. And I see a lot of people fall over or freeze at that point. And, And I suppose it's a really interesting question of how do we help people adjust expectations so that they're realistic rather than unattainable. 
one of the things that that comes out uh, as a result of you know social media and other media is that our comparison group often is you know uh, Elon Musk or <laughs> I'm not sure he's the greatest example now but um, you know like unbelievably successful people whereas previously it would be the other kids in our class or other people around us uh, and so on. And so we have this feeling that what we need to achieve is really to be at the head of a $500 million a year company or thrilled to be jumping out of bed every morning, just desperate to get into work or, you know, and, and that if we don't have that, then that defines us as a failure. So we've got that sort of underlying definition that we don't even realize we're holding. And sometimes we get into part of um, the 20s, you know, mid-20s, late 20s. We realize that by the standards of what I have taken to be success, I don't fit. I am not a success. And I'm not showing signs of becoming one either. There's a certain amount of... um, kind of wishful, hopeful, almost narcissism um, that most of us, including me uh, growing up, uh, would have experienced in our teen years, which is that we're really going to set the world on fire. And I think part of the 20s is about realizing, yeah, I'm probably not going to set the world on fire. You know, uh, you know, I'm going to be singing in a band. I'm not going to be Lady Gaga, it turns out. You know, that's, that's not going to be me. Uh, I can, but I can still do what I'm interested in doing and I can still build that life or a life that is interesting to me. But some of the dreams that I had may not come true. And how do I deal with that? How do you help people deal with it? Well, partly it's to define what the dream is. Like, let's, let's say you get it. Let's say you get it. What is it? Let's, let's actually write it down. And how, how much money is that? And how, like, what do you do in the course of a day? And what kind of house do you live in? And how many people show up at your concerts? And, and, and so I would really flesh it out. Because I think you can't let go of something until you know what it is. So let's, let's actually flesh it out and f- see what was the dream. And then look and see how, partly I guess, how realistic was that, but can we acknowledge that that has not occurred? And do we demand of that, do we demand that of the people that we know, the people that we love, the people that we respect? Do we think as ill of them for not being that as we do of ourselves? Mm. Is that almost as well, Randy, an enabling people to grieve for the lost dream? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You are uh, grieving for it, you know. I mean, many of us wanted in whatever field you choose to, you know, be this unbelievable transformative person. Theologically, uh, uh, people who are raised in a faith, you know, are often wondering, you know, maybe could be I'm the second coming, you know, or it could be the next, the next Buddha. Maybe it's about time for another Buddha. Um, and then at some point you realize, okay, that was, that was lovely. That was lovely. But it's, uh, yeah, I'm not the second coming and I'm not the next Buddha and I'm not, you know. So being able to kind of name that grief, acknowledge it for what, a, what it is, I think helps people process it. Yeah. Rainy, I also think there's something around, can we support people to 
look at their value systems to help them make their life pathways forwards rather than looking externally for that. Yeah, I think that um, on a day-to-day basis, we have to make decisions. Okay, what's available? Okay, I, you know, I have these great ideas about jobs, but I have to look at what jobs are available. Uh, and then I have to take on this project because really the boss wants me to take on this project and so on. And that's just the nature of reality. Uh, but over time, we can begin realizing, wait a minute, I am living a life that either has nothing to do with my values or is that is but it's sort of directly contradictory to those values. And I need to take a step back from my life and really think, how might I do things a little bit differently? What could I do? Not in a way that's just, you know, uh, follow my dreams, but also acknowledges, okay, what, how does this fit with reality? Mm. As well. And how am so, I going to live a meaningful life, a meaningful yes. life that provides satisfaction mm-hmm. in, in a realistic way, I suppose yeah. is what you're saying, isn't it? Do you, it have is. any, do you have any ways in which you help young people discover what those values are? And the reason I asked you this is I was having a conversation with um, a very well-trusted friend of mine who mm-hmm. is like, Jackie, teenagers will have no idea what they value or people in their early 20s. And and I disagree. I think young people in early 20s absolutely have got an ability to really look at what's important to them and what's meaningful to them. It doesn't mean that it won't shift and change over time, but for them in their space of life, I think they've got an ability to do that. But, yep. you know, what, what, what are your thoughts on that and, and how do you help young people, early 20s, mid 20s, late 20s, <laughs> discover what are my values? Well, there's a couple of things, and I think they all depend on being able um, to sit down and let a question, sort of drop a question into the still pool and watch the ripples for a period of time. And I often tell people at least 20 minutes with no media, no nothing, no, you know, phones going off or anything else, just drop the question into the pool and wait and see what comes back. And one of the questions is, um, there's a temptation when you're saying, okay, what direction should I go? Where are you looking? Well, you're looking into the future. Well, turn around, look into the past instead. If you look into the history of your life, what are the things that you are most satisfied to have done? So stop looking at temptation, what draws me forward. Look at satisfaction. What have I been glad to have done at the tail end? And, and really be as permissive as possible, you know, uh, anything at all uh, for that list, because we're not trying to come up with the gu- firm guidance right away. So one, one thing is look at your own past. A second would be uh, look at other people. Mm. We're often, oh, we don't want to be living just the life of somebody else. No, absolutely not. But who do you admire? Who are you drawn to? And ask yourself, why? What is it about them that admires me? You know, oh, I'd like, who knows, the example of Gandhi. Oh, what, what is it about him? His height? Uh, no. Okay, so what is it about, about Gandhi that you, that, that you admire? Like, what are the bits of the people that you admire, including in your social group, uh, but also uh, historical or, 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 or famous figures? And a third question comes from a really interesting man, um, uh, all, most of his books, I think all of his books I have read, uh, Quentin Crisp, 
who, if you're familiar with the old song by Sting, An Englishman in New York, that he, mm-hmm. it was written about Quentin Crisp. Uh, the Englishman in the New York in New York is not Sting; it's Quentin Crisp. Anyway, long story. But Crisp really felt that there was one question that was the most important question in life. Sartre thought there was an important question in life, which, which is, you know, is is today the day I should commit suicide? Which is a bit of a downer of a question. Let's face it. Crisp really felt that there was a better question than that, and and, and his question was, if there were no applause and no criticism, who would you be? So if you weren't doing anything to get the approval of other people, and you weren't avoiding anything to avoid the disapproval of other people, who would you be? And a lot of people shy away from that question, thinking, oh, well, I'd be robbing banks or something. And then they think about it and they realize, mm, no, I probably wouldn't be robbing banks. You know, I'm just not that interested in that. Um, so what would I be doing if nobody really cared? And that is often helpful at eliciting um, some true interest, some elements of true interest. And of course, the idea is don't just like race off and go do that, but use it in informing your decisions. So I'm going to suggest that all listeners, whether they're in their 20s or older or younger, it doesn't actually matter to sit and do those three exercises. You can either pause this now and do it or do it as your homework because, you know, psychologists always give homework, which is look back on your life. What are the things that have provided you a sense of accomplishment or satisfaction or peace or content or, you know, look, look back and find those positive emotions and what led to that. Two, who in your life, people that you know or people that you don't know but admire, who are they and why? And third, if there was no external validation or criticism, what would you be doing? Mm. Randy, I've also been thinking about this conversation. I've been thinking about the context we've been living in. So for our young people here in New Zealand, yes, we've got a global pandemic going on that they are navigating as part of their lives. And for many people in their 20s, that has put a complete stop to overseas plans. I know a number of people who had left their jobs, they were about to go on their OE, they had, you know, jobs lined up overseas, and all of a sudden they're living in a land of limbo. So they're experiencing a once in a lifetime kind of pandemic. Here in New Zealand, we've we've had uh, really awful mosque shootings in the last 12 months where we've had an act of terrorism in this country, which has been deeply distressing for everybody. So there's kind of, you know, and we're now in the face of economic instability, job loss, you know, uncertainty, etc. So they have been really challenging struggles that our young people have had to live through at an early age in their life. But my wonder was... Can there be positives for this generation that come from that? So rather than looking at the what's bad, what's hard as a result, will there actually be positives from having survived, lived through, navigated quite difficult challenges? The whole idea of tempering steel means putting it through fire, in effect. And there's the idea that in order to become uh, a full person, you have to go through difficulties. I think back to the internship program that we had at the hospital in Vancouver. And every so often, we would have somebody who had really had a great life. You know, they'd never experienced any loss, no mental health problems themselves. Um, Nobody had died on them. 
Um, they had the golden ticket. They really had the golden ticket and everything had gone really well. They were terrible clinicians, terrible, right? Because there was no sense of um, awareness of um, the kinds of difficulties that people can go through and no sense of survivability. It's not until you've survived something that you know you can. Uh, this is one reason why I think that it's actually important you know, I always, I always slightly groan inside when people say, oh, no, I'm still with the first girlfriend or boyfriend I ever dated. I'm thinking, oh, damn, you know, they've missed out on the experience of getting dumped by somebody they really liked or loved and living. Because I think that's really important. So I think going through um, uh, difficulty is a kind of essential element of uh, of growing up, and I, you know, like let's not try to spin the uh, the horrible terrorist event in any in any positive way. Um, but the um, the isolation of the pandemic, I think, will be a kind of defining experience for a lot of people. Um, I was noticing. I was just at at lunch uh, in in Vancouver, and there's actually a, a billboard. Uh, on one of the bus shelters that's saying, what did you come to value during quarantine? Mm. You know, I think people will think back and and really remember this time as mm. a kind of uh, formative time. And I would encourage people not to view this as intermission, not to view this as what I am not doing, but as what am I able to do learning about myself um, cultivating in myself during this time. Thinking of it almost like a gift, isn't it? That's how I've thought of this time. I've been given this time to pause, reflect, to connect with people that are really important to me, to assess mm -hmm. things that I might have been doing on automatic that perhaps don't actually bring me meaning or energy or <laughs> that I do because I feel like I should. Um, and I, I agree. I think this will be an absolutely defining point in time. And, you know, back to your point of, the terrorist attack was awful, but what New Zealand did afterwards was amazing. You know, yes. we absolutely came together in kindness and compassion. And I think in turn, it's brought us more united. And I think our young people have also seen that and the power of that. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that one can uh, can get from, if, one, if I can put it this crassly, uh, from an act of tremendous cruelty is a kind of uh, defining rejection of that um, and an awareness of the consequences of hatred, the consequences of um, prejudgment, um, and a, a kind of watchfulness uh, for that in one's own life, mm. you know, at, at much smaller scale, presumably. So if you were to wrap up for us, Randy, uh, your tips, if we were talking to those in their 20s, and if you could say, what are the top things or the key things that are going to make you the most miserable in your life? And then I will do my best at flipping that and giving them the what they could do. Well, I think one of the things that I would encourage people to do is to sit down for 20 minutes and actually time it out and ask yourself, okay, let's come up with the date one year from today. And what would I do if my goal was to really feel my life was off track? 
and I was miserable and I was having a terrible time, what would, what would I do? What are the, all, all the um, strategies that I would do to bring about that lost, stuck person? And you will rebel against that, but uh, the mind rebels against it. But it can be tremendously helpful at identifying the path because the path down and the path up are the same path. It just depends on whether you turn right or left. More generally, uh, I think I would uh, neglect your body. So don't take care of your body. Don't take care of exercise and diet and and, uh, substances and so on. Um, I would uh, live a life of fantasy. Uh, So fantasize rather than do things uh, to actually bring about some of our dreams to whatever extent we can. Um, I would kill time. I would uh, notice boredom and do everything that I could to just do something that occupies that time. Uh, whatever it might be, whether it's television, media, YouTube, uh, games. I'm not opposed to any of those things as, as part of the spice of life, but as a main course, not so great. Um, and I would sit waiting at home for something to grab me. I would um, await my passion uh, to be delivered by FedEx to my front door. Um, because that will never happen. Uh, passion does not get delivered and passion does not get discovered. It gets grown and cultivated. Um, and so you will be passionless. So those are some of the strategies that would be helpful, I think. Whoa, that sounds like an enlightening, uh, life, Randy. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to flip that and say, as you leave this podcast, can you do your basics, which is how I describe that, eat well, sleep well, get out and exercise. Like you have to have a really strong foundation to build your life on top of. So, you know, they are your ingredients that have to be present consistently. Uh, Can you get busy, you know, get busy with things that are meaningful to you and that provide a sense of achievement or connection um, or or satisfaction uh, to help you be fulfilled rather than sitting in a hole, which is how I describe this uh, world world of internet and social media. And, you know, there are many rabbit holes you can get bored stuck down. So get out of your hole and get busy with meaningful things. Hold your inner child, your inner teen, and when they're telling you – that perhaps you're not living the life that they had dreamed of, the fantasy life, you know, be kind to them, acknowledge the wonderful dreams your inner child or adolescent had, uh, but use your use your newly found adult brain to kind of bring some realism into that and perhaps have a look at what elements of that dream can I get in a realistic way that will provide me the goods uh, without setting me up for consistent disappointment and get hungry for your own life. You have to grow it. As Randy says, uh, FedEx, Amazon, New Zealand Post, the courier is not going to deliver that to you. So uh, go out and get hungry because you can create it if you work hard and uh, you find grit in in working for your passion and and what you're hoping to achieve. Is Is that an okay summary and return, Randy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Your final question to our listeners is, if you look at your career, Randy, what do you believe is the most valuable thing you have done 
in your time and the work you do? Gosh, that's hard to say. I, I would be tempted to say show up um, <laughs> and, and, and just keep on going, despite the fact that indeed most things uh, don't work. The only way that uh, so many things uh, in in my life actually have worked is that I've tried 10 times that number of things. Um, it's not the product of uh, talent or skill, believe me, uh, to a great extent. It's more a matter of just uh, just showing up. Um, and uh, I think being able to um, train and, and help other clinicians in um, developing their practice and their ability to help other people, I think has been one of the most rewarding things uh, mm. that I've done. And what we've learned on this podcast when we spoke to Adam Grant is a sign of a true leader is when you ask them that question, they give you a response where they've supported or helped people below them rather than contributing to people above. So Randy, you have just absolutely epitomized <laughs> that. Oh, I'm glad I passed that test. It's the first <laughs> one ever. Thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, truly an honour. And uh, I think our young people our young people will get a lot out of this, as well as many other people in every other decade. You know, it's useful reminders, I think, for us all to really stop, pause, reflect, and reset, which is kind of how I've been thinking of this pandemic time. Pause, reflect, reset. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you. I think I'll be here. My pleasure. I'm Jackie McGuire, and you've just finished listening to the How to Be Miserable in Your 20s episode of Mindbrew. I hope this episode enabled you to pause and reflect on your life, no matter what age you are, and provided helpful strategies to investigate what elements may help you build a meaningful life going forward. None of us have life sorted when we transition into adulthood. It takes time and adjustment. So let's hold ourselves kindly, bring compassion to our inner kids, and find ways to express our childhood dreams. And if you're a parent like me, let's think about how we can raise adults as well as children. Please share this episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thanks, and have a good day.